0: You're listening to Source Connected, a podcast hosted by Phil Simpson, showcasing creative and innovative solutions for a new earth paradigm.
1: Welcome to Source Connected, and I'm delighted that you're joining me for this very first episode. Recently, I headed over to Wells Somerset in the UK to chat with plant-based chef and educator, Samado Sibley. Somado is known internationally as a leader in world-class plant-based food Combining his Michelin star kitchen experience with cutting edge nutrition, the power of superfoods, and the wisdom of natural medicine. I spoke to Samado about his background, his early influences, and how everything changed for him in terms of his food philosophy and approach to well being during a profound trip to India. We also talked about local food production, growing, and community. Enjoy. So, Samado, thank you for agreeing to be my guest on the Source Connected podcast, and what a beautiful home. Thank you for welcoming me to your home. Thank you very much for the invitation, Phil. Pleasure to see you today. Great. I mean, this is a very creative space here. Obviously, this says a lot about you and, and what you do and what you believe in. Yeah, I'm very lucky to live here. I've been in the
0: property now for about six years, and, um it's strange on one level because of all the places I've lived in the UK, I wake up here every day and it feels like I've arrived in a new space.
1: And um, were you sort of drawn to this particular space for a particular reason? What led you to to come here?
0: Good question. Um, I'd actually moved to Glastonbury and it was back in 2007. Mm. And um, I had a couple of friends who were both Therapists, they were both massage therapists, Mm. and I booked a session with one of them. And I drove to this house, and it was actually the one that we're both sitting in now. Mm. And I came into the cottage, and I thought, "Oh my god, this this feels really good, yeah, really good." And then what happened was a few years later, I chose to to sell the property in Glastonbury, and I I sold the property, and I didn't know where I was going, and um. One day I was walking past an estate agent when I'd given up all hope of finding somewhere to live and out the corner of my eye, I saw this property on the market. I thought, no way, can't be the same cottage that I went into. Yeah. Anyway, I booked an appointment to view the house and I arrived mm. here. And as soon as I came through the front door, I thought, oh my God, it's the same space. Yeah, yeah. And, and everything happened really quickly to move in here. I mean, from selling the flat to, um, to
1: arriving here, I think the process was about a month. Which is really quick, actually. Yeah, yeah. Especially and, uh, in the UK, and that's a great yeah. sign, isn't it? Because when things happen very naturally mm. and almost effortlessly, you know that you're kind of onto something, and because um, it's-, it's almost like the universe is kind of guiding you along and laying the pathway.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's what it felt like yeah. here.
1: It, it was such a confirmation,
0: right down to actually seeing the type of the flooring in a dream before right. I came. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: And um, yeah, I'm very blessed to live here.
1: And do you, I mean, it's obviously I can see just looking around, we're sitting in your kitchen and it's a, a working kitchen. Do you do a lot of cooking and prepping here? I mean, I know you do lots of different things which we will get onto. Your offerings are very wide and diverse. Mm-hmm. Do you do a lot of sort of work here in this kitchen or is it more just a sort of family kitchen? Yeah, no, that's a, another great question. I mean,
0: I'd probably spend if I'm not in the garden, most of the time in this kitchen, uh, whilst I'm in the house, because sure, I'm I'm making food for us, I'm developing recipes, um, and just exploring new ways of working with the ingredients in the space. So it's like mm. it's my studio, it's my laboratory, it's um, it's the place where yeah, it's very creative,
1: and yeah. it's it feels like a really inspiring place, and and because you, you've got an outside space very close by, so it's obviously got that cottage garden, cottage kitchen feel to it. So that must be very inspiring. It is because, yeah,
0: there's a lot of light in here as well because Mm. of the skylights in the roof. Um, So even in the winter time when the days are short, um, there's a lot of natural light that comes in. But whilst I'm working in the kitchen with the ingredients, I'm also looking out into the garden. Mm. So I'm seeing the bees jump around the flowers. I'm seeing the birds popping in. The trees coming into blossom, so there's that connection with nature that I'm
1: feeling by looking outside whilst I'm working with nature on the board. Yeah, it's yeah. nice to have that connection and that you're part of it yeah. as you're working and as you're then producing and creating. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I've been reading through your website, and you know you've got a very colourful, very broad background and experience. You've done lots of different things, and. Let's, let's just go back in time a little bit to where it all started for you, because it, from what I understand, you got involved in cooking and, and food very early on, didn't you? It was in your teens?
0: Yeah, it, oh. was, it was in my teens. I mean, I was studying home economics while I was at school, and we had a competition, and mm. the, the head or the teacher of the class, she came up and she said, oh, you do realize there's a placement available for work experience, local hotel and restaurant, yes. which at the time was in one of the top five kind of hotels and restaurants in the UK. And at that time in in showing my age now, but when we were kind of 15, 14, 15 years old, we could choose to go and work in a profession by writing to an employer locally, so we could gain some experience. Um, and you were lucky if you even managed to get get a placement there but Mm. this was offered to me to go to Gravetie so I had two weeks working in this kitchen in a Michelin star kitchen
1: 14 years old wow that's really you must have how was that you must it must been. you must (laughs) have been quite brave did you were you aware what that meant at that time did you have a sort of already an awareness around what a Michelin starred restaurant meant and and the pressures um I didn't really I didn't really understand the pressures or
0: what Michelin-style restaurants were at the time. I think the only comprehension I had of it was that it was, it was the best, you know? Mm. wherever you go, this is like the best. Um, so I think there was trepidation and probably a lot of fear. You know, I was very quiet, I didn't say anything when I was in the kitchen, but at the end of those two weeks, the head chef came up to me and he said, when you leave school, there's a job here for you. Wow, well, that's... Um, yeah, so obviously you did well. <laughs>
1: <So>.
0: <laughs> Must have done, and, that, yeah. and that's where the journey began.
1: And, and was there a sort of um, at home? Did you the fact that you even started embarking on that? Was there already a sort of food philosophy and, and 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 cooking and food preparation going on at home that had inspired you to go that route in the first place? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. It really had because both my mum and dad were very very good cooks. They loved mm. food, and okay. it, it was the one thing. Mum, both my mum and my dad were were working. They both had their own jobs. Um, But food was the one thing that brought us together as a family around the table. No matter what else was happening, mum would always be cooking or dad would be cooking, but we would always sit down and eat together. That was our time as a family to share. So it did have a massive imprint for sure.
1: Okay, and so, and then, after that chef said there's a job for you, did you take that job or what happened after that? How did your career then evolve from that point on?
0: Yeah, that was, it was an interesting summer because, um, yes, that that chef had offered me a job for when I left school, which was actually that summer. I'd also applied to another restaurant, um, which was in Oxfordshire. Again, that was also in one of the top five restaurants. In England mm. uh, a chap called Raymond Blanc and um, they offered me a job as well right and yeah. you know I had just turned I was 15 I think around this time both of these offers on the table and whilst I was kind of deliberating which one to go for I then went to work at this other hotel that was close to where I lived and that That was a big eye opener for me because going into that kitchen when the chef, when I met the chef, the first thing he did when I went into the kitchen was he took me out into the garden and he took me into the greenhouse and he showed me how the food was grown or he showed me the fields where the wild mushrooms were. And so that was a big, big shift. Long answer, but I ended up going to Gravetie and not Oxfordshire. And right. that's where I started my three year apprenticeship.
1: Okay. So, so that connection with how the food was grown is obviously that came in very early on. Yeah. Didn't it? And that's such a great foundation, isn't it? Because it could have quite easily been the other way around where it was just in the kitchen. And it was all about pumping out the food quickly and most efficiently and mm. and more about, just about the taste and, and the prestige. But yet yeah. you got that insight so that obviously you were calling that in. Yeah, it's
0: funny though, Phil, because, um, you know, when, especially recently reflecting on that past, because of the questions that I'm kind of answering today, Mm -hmm. reflecting on that past or that early part of the journey, I was fortunate because I was working with chefs that had a connection to the land. They had a connection to the seasons. They had a connection to the produce. And it was almost like one of those memories that you put to the back of your mind and you don't Mm. consider it. You just kind of go on ahead. And after that experience, there was that period of time, probably a decade where it was just about producing food that looked good without a conscious memory of where it had come from. It was just a delivery that would arrive in the kitchen. Um, So especially in the past few years as well, there's been a remembrance
1: those chefs who introduced me to the the growing, the seasons. And you travelled all over the world then as a part of your career, working in different restaurants.
0: Yeah. I think by the time I got, yeah, I was 20 when I went to Sardinia and mm-hmm. I was head chef of a restaurant there.
1: Wow.
0: Um, which is incredible. I mean, we just had local growers arriving with their vans, parking up outside and you choose yeah. the... produce that you wanted to buy and then you would cook what was on the back of this van right um which felt incredible because having worked in the uk even at good restaurants um a lot of it was flown in from all over the world whereas Mm. in sardinia it was literally what had just been harvested from the field so that was incredible and then yeah later on during my career that i then traveled and I was living in Australia and Bali and Italy and, and um, yeah, just extensively traveling.
1: Yeah. And how did you find that sort of moving from place to place? Is that, is that something you felt really good about?
0: I liked it for so many different reasons. I mean, I think I'd already had at that point when I was traveling extensively, I'd, I'd kind of got a decade or a decade and a half under my belt in the UK. Mm. kitchens so living in all of those different locations i immersed myself in the culture and whether that was india or bali or Mm. thailand and there you know because then it it took the food onto another level it wasn't just about meal times and eating you know there were certain customs that that people would have around their food. In Thailand, as an example, you would never eat alone. That was seen as as so rude. Mm. Food was about sharing. Yes. And so you'd never see a restaurant with a table for one. (sighs) You know, it was always big communal tables. That was a big thing. In India, people were grateful for whatever food was served Mm. in general. Uh, which was a different psychology to to that in kitchens of the West, so it was quite a profound, deep journeying with food and unexpected with those travels and I loved it,
1: yeah, well that's great, and that's obviously shaped how you are and 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 so all of those experiences would have brought you to a place of what what is important here and and what is ultimately about. What food is really about, and 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 how we relate to food, and I suppose that led you to. I remember reading on your website around about two thousand, you had a sort of a, a kind of a turning point, a pivotal moment where you just felt like you were doing all of these things, working in all these incredible restaurants and and catering for different people, but you felt like something was missing. Mm-hmm. And and what, what? Tell tell me a little bit about that moment. What what was that realization?
0: Yeah, well, around that time. In the UK, there was a big emergence in the world of what I call Nouvelle Cuisine, Mm -hmm. because in the early 70s, there wasn't much of a food culture in the UK. Um, And early on in my career, I was fortunate because I was in these Michelin-star kitchens. Nouvelle Cuisine was coming out, which generally meant very beautiful, styled, plates with not a lot of food on them, but looks (laughs) like pieces of art. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And probably needed 30, 40 chefs to make one dish. But those kitchens, a lot of the time, the produce was flown in from all over the world. So, you know, berries from New Zealand or or mangoes from Mexico. And all of this abundance of food was flown in from all over the world. Um, And it was the best. It was the best of everything, luxury ingredients. Um, But I wasn't getting excited about it anymore. There was something that was lacking. There was, it was not lighting me up like it did when I was 15. I was so excited at 15 around food and kitchens. And I couldn't quite work out what it was, but I did know at that point, because I was around 35 in the year 2000, my health wasn't great because anybody that knows Michelin style chefs, they're partying as hard as they're working, you know? So mm. with everything that that entails, um, you're not looking after yourself. Um, and I was exhausted and I thought, okay, I'm kind of done with food cause it wasn't exciting me anymore. A friend had been in India. It was never somewhere that I wanted to go. Um, but I felt, there was something inside which needed something so culturally different mm. to kind of wake me up out of this inertia yeah. um, to, to light that spark again. And I, I just booked a ticket to India. Wow. Um, yeah. And I think I had two days booked in a hotel, but other than that, there was nothing planned. Oh, yeah. um, and when I got there within 24 hours of, in, of arriving there, I met this woman. And it was, I just had this download, you know, she was talking about Ayurveda and then she invited me to a meditation and then she wanted to do, um, yeah, she was doing healing and meditation and Ayurveda and it just blew my mind. I'd never associated health, food and health together. Those two things were, I didn't know anything. So that then was the kind of, ignition to starting this new path, everything started opening up there again. I started feeling like that 15 year old boy Mm. in in a kitchen again, excited by life. I started learning about how foods affect the body, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Um, And because I was doing it myself and not just learning it from a book, that experience became deeper, more profound, more shifts started happening. My Mm. health started improving and there was a thirst because I knew that I was going to be learning way more than I ever thought I would around food. Mm. And I'd had the foundation of the Michelin star kitchens. So the precision, the timing, the structures, I'd already got that under my belt and yet now I could start learning how food could then become
1: medicine. Wow, that's amazing. So it was almost like a pilgrimage, really, that ended in sort of like an apprenticeship into a whole new area that built on what you'd already learned about the structure and the form. Yeah. But it really led you to a much deeper inner journey about well being and what food ultimately is. Yeah. Because just tuning
0: in with that now those michelin star kitchens, you were using meat and dairy and sugar and wheat, and you, it was very, it was, I'm trying to best explain it, it was quite a contracted kind of monatomic way of working with food. There was mm-hmm. almost like a disconnect. Yes. You make a telephone call for a product or some produce and it would mm-hmm. arrive packaged, wrapped in plastic, Mm. and your job was to then turn that delivered product into something that looked delicious or stylish on a plate. That was food. Right. Um, And fast forward to the year 2000, when I was just kind of empty around food, and I'd arrived in India, suddenly I'm seeing people um, looking happy, looking healthy, humble, open, warm. I'd never seen spices in a Michelin star kitchen. I'd never seen grains. I'd never seen pulses. I didn't know how to make a curry. I didn't know how to use certain pieces of equipment. I didn't know about fermentation. Mm. There were so many aspects. And what happened is because I started working um, or studying in these Asian cultures, living there at the same time, I was invited into people's homes and these people had a wisdom that was far beyond anything I'd learned about food. It was, I'd say it was a conscious and it was a spiritual understanding of what food really meant. Food being an energy and food being a frequency. Yes, And how everything that we put into the body is going to determine our experience. And that is where food I started discovering was the medicine.
1: Yeah. And you mentioned Ayurveda um, when you first mentioned going to India. Obviously, that's a whole philosophy and almost science in itself, understanding the the different types of energies in the body the doshas they talk about and yeah. is that something that you learnt about as you were working or did you actually then actively seek out and try and discover what that was all about so i actively uh, tried to discover what that
0: was all about because the first lady or woman that i met when i was in india that already had an understanding of ayurveda and meditation and and mm. healing and personal development we both went to an Ayurvedic center and we had a consultation. Mm. And on a very simple introductory level, I understood why I had certain issues within my life at the time, i.e. being in a kitchen, stressed out, angry, mm. emotionally explosive, mm. fiery, very, ad- what they would call adrenal, so mm. there was a lot of energy. You wanted to be here, there, and everywhere. But the but the the opposite of that was being quite exhausted when I didn't have those bursts of energy. Mm. So through that Ayurvedic introduction, I discovered that all of the foods that I've been eating, probably the best part of my life, were mm. all of the things that exacerbated the stress, the emotional outbursts. The anger, the fieriness, you know, things like sugar and dairy and spices and alcohol, they exacerbate certain conditions. Yes. And so, if you had a certain constitution, if you had this drink, this food, then you would start getting regular sleep. You feel a little bit calmer. Your emotions would be balanced. Nobody ever taught me how foods worked like that, how they determine our experience. Mm -hmm. And I knew that that anger or those emotions were not healthy. But if somebody had told me that if I took certain things out and put certain things in, then my experience um, of life would have been very different.
1: Yeah. And it's a great discovery, isn't it? Because I've had some experience with Ayurveda and um, recently saw an Ayurvedic doctor who took my pulse and and it was amazing how much he was able to describe about my constitution and picked up on things that i knew were there so it was really interesting and insightful to know that that's going on and that it's very um individual you know? yeah like the saying one man's food is another man's poison it's i suppose there's a lot of truth in that and we need to discover what our body type is and what works best for us so it's a kind of a a different relationship with food, isn't it? Rather than just consuming everything. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an inward journey, isn't it? To sort of discover what is the right thing. Yeah, and that was the thing with the Ayurveda
0: that was really switching me on because it's it's a lifestyle.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: So sure, there's the foods that you are best, uh, are best avoided or there's the foods that you should be having, mm. but it's how it reflects every other aspect of the life. It's like if, okay, mm. so if I don't have X, then I'm going to be calmer in my day. Mm. I'm going to be nicer to be around. I'm going to have more energy. It's, um, yeah. And then the prayer and or the meditation mm. and the, the detox processes that you can, mm. you can do through that
1: practice. And, um, fasting, all of it is, is
0: beautiful, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I, th- I think that's um, it's about how we are in life, isn't it? In, in the moment and how we sort of step into life and how we present ourselves and how we interact with things. It's kind of, if we, if we make it sort of that sort of dance and, a, and an offering with gratitude, it, it just changes the frequency, doesn't it? Rather yeah. than just Like you said before, when you were working in the kitchen, there was a lot of anger and, and agitation and pressure and obviously that reflects in what we then produce and and the outcome of what we're doing yeah and i think at the moment as well with with the way that
0: life is changing mm. on so many different levels right now there's certain things that we can put in which will support us in our growth and there are other things like you just rem- reminded me you know those old days of the chef in those kitchens, very stressed mm. very pressured, and you're having things like wheat and sugar and dairy and alcohol and caffeine mm. they're all very explosive in the body, you know they 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 create complications um, and there were health conditions that I had where all of those things I was doing food wise or drinking. You know they were exacerbating the condition i had no idea but it was only looking at the ancient whether it was the ayurveda or some chinese medicine that then i was able to find the remedies and those remedies can come through something that goes in the ground it was mind-blowing so simple and yet so mind-blowing at the same yeah. time
1: yeah I mean, it's simple isn't it you know and i think when we look at the world today we've kind of the push and the drive is towards medicalization and treating the symptoms mm-hmm. rather than changing the lifestyle and just working with what we have and 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 working from the inside out on and, and, and whatever level that is, whether it's about what we put in our bodies or how we are, the emotional, the spiritual, all of those things. Once we become aligned and in tune with those things, that's where true healing comes rather than just going through life like a vehicle. And then when it breaks, we take it to the garage to get it mended. It's, um, it's a very different approach. It's a very
0: different mm. approach. And I'm, uh, I really love the way that you've mentioned that Phil, because taking that back to that question you asked me around 2000, um, before I'd had this experience of being able to travel, like the medicalization of treating a symptom in 2000, before i gone to Asia, it was okay, well, I can have, you know, I can put this other thing in my life and I can get this and I can get that, but it's not going to go to, um, it's not going to go to the root of the unhappiness, or it's not going to go to the root of why there's not contentment in what's happening. And so going and spending time in the East and learning about these ancient ways of healing and lifestyle is that you're really going to the root
1: rather than the band-aid, you know, the plaster on the top of the wound. Yeah, I think a lot of people struggle with that, don't they? In the sense that we've been so conditioned to believe that there's going to be a pill or a plaster that's going to heal us or make it better, or, you know, there's something that can be changed externally. So when people do get sick and ill, they really struggle with that concept that actually they, it needs to be done from inside. And, and as you said, we need to get to the root of that. And I think it's that coming back into balance because it's also in Chinese medicine as well. They talk about balancing the energies in the body. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, well, that's, that sounds amazing. And of course, now that everything that you do today now is is based on on that philosophy, isn't it? Yeah. Essentially, So you know, once again, looking at your website, it, you're offering such an array of different things. So, you're not only working as a chef, but you're also a consultant. You're also working in education or educating people and, and and helping people to learn these different philosophies and methods. I mean, how how do you balance all of those things, especially against the backdrop of all the changing times and the the current restrictions? How's that been? Well. The restrictions in the current situation
0: on one level has been a massive blessing because there's been an awareness of how I've been spending my energy. Um, Because like like we were talking about before, yes, I was traveling a lot. And this time period has enabled me to really kind of solidify what it is that I do and Mm -hmm. then be able to offer what I do in a much, yeah, solidified place. So how I balance that? Well, yes, I am doing all of these different things. What is supporting that is by being able to be here and look after myself at the same time through helping other people. So, you know, whether that's me connecting with a a farm that is growing a particular crop or it's the mill which is grinding, you know, organic rye flour half an hour up the road and having time to create fermentation or or cultures here to make food that helps keep my immune system really strong and in a positive state and then because it's not a a job let's say for a job or work in an old-fashioned sense I absolutely love what I do and when I see the transformation in the the people that I work with, it lights me up and I feel so happy to be able to, to do that, that there is an energy running through me that is natural rather than stimulated. So yeah, there are days I just, right, that's it. I need to get off the computer or out of the kitchen. Or I'll go in the garden and I'll rest, restore myself with my feet on the grass and I'll feel amazing. Uh, and then I can come back and do all of those things but I love what I do, and I'm grateful to be able to love what I do.
1: Yeah, that's a very special thing. And I I think we were talking earlier about being on a higher frequency and to to actually achieve that, we need to be just doing what we love and what brings us joy and passion. So it obviously sounds like you're in the right place there. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. that sounds great. And um, I noticed that on your website that you offer your services by donation is that something that you've brought in recently and what was the the reasoning behind that and how does that work for you okay so
0: the donation on the website is something that i started offering around midsummer last year because looking at what's happening in the world and with so many things moving and shifting i know from the past i've had the good fortune of people who also have had a donation based system Mm. through their business and it has enabled me to engage with their work consistently because they're offering a donation basis because there's sometimes when I'm feeling affluent Mm. and it's affordable uh, and there's other times I'm not feeling really affluent, but I know that that product or that service is really going to support me right now. So because I've had my own personal experience of that through the Oracle Girl Foundation, um, and how much that's benefited me, I want to be able to then share that with other people so that they have that experience, so mm. that it's not determined, so that people have access to what they need, and it's not determined by an old paradigm structure, which basically says, if you haven't got this now, you can't have this now. You know, I am going to go a little bit off track, When I was living in India in 2007, one of the first things I noticed is there's never any prices. I mean, maybe if you go to the restaurant or the hotel, but a lot of the time, there's no prices on anything. You would talk to people and it would be a game. Okay, I'll give you 50 rupees. No, I'll take 40, 30. And it was fun. And it worked every single time. And it's pretty much the same energy through this donation system. I want to be able to offer what I've got and what I've learned to people, and it's not determined by a fixed price, because there's sometimes we, we need it more than others. We don't always have the funds and sometimes we do.
1: And do you think we're being sort of, I don't like to use the word push, but do you think society in general, we're being invited to reconsider how we do business, for example, or how we interact at that level? So through a method of exchange or sharing, so that you know, if people don't have the means, say financially, they could still have access to services and to food or whatever it is, and it could be just a, a gesture of exchange through capabilities or whatever. Do you think that's a sort of an area we're heading towards? I would like to think so because
0: it's a very very valuable asset. Because I think living in the West, we take certain skills for granted. Mm. or certain things that we have for granted. And I keep going back to my time in Bali, or going back to Asia, sorry, not just Bali, but when I was in Bali, I realized when I got off the plane there that I speak English, and that was such a valuable asset to the people that were there. So I was Mm. able to teach children, whilst Mm. I was also learning about food, the local children English, and that was massive for them. And. I've been aware of bartering systems here in the UK within communities where maybe somebody's an electrician mm. and they could fix your your socket. Um, but it's also your daughter's birthday and she needs a cake this weekend. So those two stu- skill sets can meet, both offer something that's mutually beneficial for the other party. Yeah. Both people walk away with what they've got. Both people have um, a sense of happiness over that exchange you've got the human factor in there as well which goes mm. beyond the, the transaction of the paper money and i think yeah in answer to your question we are moving into changing times and mm. it does feel like the right way forward because mm. there are fixed costs with some things and other things yeah. which could be flexible and mm. should be
1: flexible well i think also do would uh, yeah, be interesting to get your take on this but i think it feels that the current system of having food transported in from hundreds of miles away and being dependent on a supermarket just doesn't seem very sustainable, long to, you know, not even short term at the moment. And having that access to local food, local produce, and working together in in local communities to grow food and produce food, share. I mean, it, it feels like. <laughs> we need to be looking at that is that would you agree that's um
0: 100% yeah. absolutely 100% i mean so many stories over the years i've heard around this issue i mean there was a farmer and he was um he was growing apples and he'd sold apples or signed a contract with a supermarket for them to take his crop and what he did was he found out when he went to his local supermarket, once he'd sold the apples to them, that his apples had done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles of a trip before they ended up on the supermarket shelf. Because the supermarket buys the apple, they go to a distribution center where they get packed and then sent to stores around the UK. That's not viable in the long-term. You know, in terms of energy usage, for that. Hmm. The price on top of the apples for something that has just come from down the road. That's a classic example of just a mismanagement of energy use, Mm. really. Yeah, yeah. You know, obviously there's the costs on top of it as well. I know if you look at centenarians, so those that live to a hundred and beyond one of their attribute or what they attribute that lifespan to is eating the foods that come from their local environment. And whether that's the honey or the greens or the nuts from the trees or the fruit that's in season. We also through macrobiotics, if you look at that as a concept, they would only use food that is local and seasonal and organic. Um, We are healthier when Mm -hmm. we eat local foods, because when it's ripe, Mm -hmm. it's ready, we eat it. A lot of the food shipped in from across the world is not picked when it's ripe, it's gas flushed or packaged and ripened in transit. Energetically, and I'm gonna go back to the macrobiotics here as well, you do become stronger and more resilient in your body when you're eating what's around you. You also Mm. learn different cooking techniques. So, you know, maybe you're growing raspberries in the summer and you can freeze them, you can Mm. dry them, you Mm. can puree them to see you through the winter. Same with tomatoes. You know, you can pickle, you can bottle, you can ferment. Mm. There's preservation methods our ancestors used. The relationship with our local environment becomes much more stronger and more resilient when we connect to the local farmers and growers. If we support the supermarket chains, that money goes to that supermarket chain and it goes out of the environment. There's a study, I think, you know, if you spend a pound in a supermarket or a pound in a fruit and veg shop, that pound goes much further Mm -hmm. and benefits the local community much more than that pound in your multinational. The multinationals, the big supermarkets, they take out contracts with let's say, a farmer in Norfolk, they say, right, I'll buy your broccoli for next season. So that farmer then invests money or gets money from the bank uh, to update their equipment. So they'll take out a huge loan, thinking that they've got this on rolling contract with Hmm. the supermarket. Hmm. Six months into the contract, the supermarket pulls out. We don't want your product anymore. The farmer is left with a huge loan that he cannot pay back. The supermarket's got cheaper broccoli from another supplier and that's how they monopolize the market. Mm. Food wastage. People go to a supermarket and spend a fortune on their their weekly food shop. So much of it ends up in landfill. You know, we are fortunate in that, I mean, I can speak, I'm very fortunate living here because I can go to farms and Mm. farmers markets and, local growers and you know there's an abundance out there Mm. that we can find without being reliant on the supermarkets and it's a subject I could bang on about until yeah
1: no it's great and and, and, and one of the things I've often been thinking about is like how could we um, set up these new structures and and I think there are a lot of people they don't have the the knowledge or the time at the moment to grow their own food. So is there a way that we could sort of strike up sort of community connections where people are helping in gardens or in, on farms and that in return, people get then access to food? Um, you know, have you had any thoughts about a new, let's let's sort of project a bit more into the immediate future where, where there could be a system that would work that w- might be donation based or exchange based?
0: Yeah, I have thought about that and I think, you know, a space or, a, or an environment where people can go and eat, learn, grow, collaborate is community. Yes. You know, because if you're growing the food, cooking the food, eating the food, you're also doing it as a community. It's something that you're doing together. Mm. You're all learning from people's different skill sets. Mm. A lot happens over the conversations or, you know, conversations over food. And then when you're physically actually growing it together Mm. out in the elements, in the seasons, there is that camaraderie um, that makes it a joyful experience. And if you look at the Mediterranean, that's what they do when they're harvesting grapes or olives. And at the end of that harvest, they'll all gather around the tree and, Mm. and share wine or share bread. Or, you know, there's that community element. And that's what needs to come back.
1: And it is, yes, and I like the idea of that sharing and the handing down of knowledge. And like you say, we all have different skills and things just get learned that you wouldn't otherwise have access to Mm -hmm. if you were on your own learning from a cookbook or, you know, or just buying stuff from a supermarket. You just don't get that sort of insight. You don't
0: get that insight. I mean, the thing is, by learning how food is, is grown or actually being in a physical space smelling, tasting and eating the food whilst it's being cooked. It's a multi-sensory experience. Yes. And, and food is a really good one. Um, because when you're actually cooking, it's one of the only things that you'll do where you're engaging all five senses at the same time. So when you've got that in a live space with, with people in your environment is multi-sensory. Yes. Yeah. You know, so, it's it's a fantastic way to immerse yourself in the in the process.
1: Yeah. And 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 sort of going into the area of education because I know you work in helping people to learn about different philosophies and and, and your r- raw food in schools for example you mentioned very early on when we were talking about your where it all started in the home economics class. Do you, do, you, mm. do you think there's an area there where we could really help children for example to to understand what's really going on with food you know i think a lot of children are only used to buying things in packages in supermarkets they yeah. see the food coming back home and, and never really get to see how it's grown what it looks like
0: yeah yeah i mean i think children and education um because they are our future generation are where we want to be spending more time in terms of food because whatever we put inside, we're gonna become. And the children, from speaking to some parents, right now are a much higher frequency than let's say my generation. Mm. So the foods that I could get away with eating at 15, 16, are not going to work in the bodies of a 15, 16 year old in the same way today. So there have been studies that have been carried out that have attributed some of the foods that the teenagers are eating now to the reason why they have certain issues going on with their health. And those things were not around when I was younger at Mm. their age. Yeah. Also, when I was younger, we had a home economics class. So I was in a cookery class every week. I think it was on Friday afternoons and that was the best class of the week. I don't think kids have that anymore.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure whether they still do home economics. I, I know you have sort of handwork and I, I know the school where my daughters go in Froome, they, they did have some stints out in the garden. There's said the school right. garden, So they did learn to sort of grow some food. I don't know how much of it they did, but... Um, yeah, so I'm not sure what the current curriculum is in the yeah. mainstream schools.
0: I think not just the cooking aspect of it, but getting them out into the garden so that they can see how food is grown.
1: Yeah, and, and harvested and, and, harvested. and, and what we can do with it. Yeah.
0: yeah, because there's a lot more respect for food when you know how it's grown. Um, you know, the growing process, particularly, you know, the seasons. Mm. You know the resilience of the plant to be able to provide food when the children learn that at an earlier age then they have more respect for and we all do yeah you know i didn't really learn this stuff until i was about 35 but Mm. there was more of a reverence that came through for for what was arriving on my plate when i understood the journey of how it got there i'd love to be able to teach children
1: what Such is, a valuable skill set. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, they are our future. And I mean, we are in these very challenging times. And it's, um, I mean, it just feels like we need that sort of new thinking out of the box yeah. approach. Um, the old system is now really starting to break apart. And it's really what can we bring in that resonates with a higher frequency and, and, and is a new solution? rather than just regurgitating more of the same and um, falling into the same traps. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And those things are...
0: Slowly, I'm starting to hear of um, parents recognizing that they want their children to be outside a bit more in nature. They want them learning about how to make food. Basic skill sets, life skills, you know, that you don't see in the state schools. I'm kind of focusing on the food aspect of it, but when somebody, you know, when when you can make food healthy, that feels good in the body, then it's one step to you being able to take care of yourself. It's a, it's it's mm. an element of self care when you can cook. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if children are being able to talk that, which I know there's many parents that are setting up kind of alternative schools at the moment where that's going to be a, an element of it and they're going to be teaching the kids how to grow the food and get the hands in the soil. That's the way forward. Because when they go into state schools now, I've, I've seen programs where they've asked the kids to draw what a chicken looks like and the children are drawing nuggets. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I remember, you yeah, know, because Jamie Oliver went on a whole you know, he did have that whole series, this was years ago now, where he was trying to transform school dinners. And there was a, a big thing there where a lot of the children had no idea what they were, but like saying the chicken nuggets were something they recognized straight away, but not yeah. realizing what was behind it all. And, you know, and it's... Um,
0: yeah, and I mean, we are lucky to be living out here in the countryside. I think it's different if you're in a city because Mm. it's a lot more tempting for kids if they get any money in their pocket, you know, pocket money or money for food, and it's up to them to buy their, or take care of themselves of food, that a lot of the schools in inner cities have a lot of these cheap fast food cafes or whatever you call them around close to the school areas. You know, so that's one big part. Jamie Oliver did do a really great job. I mean, he discovered that the, you know, here in England, more money goes to prison meals mm. than goes to children's meals in schools, right? Which was quite an interesting one, but yeah, it needs to be taught. It mm. needs to be taught as part of a curriculum in daily life. You know, yeah. even if it's just getting the kids involved when you're making lunch or making dinner.
1: Well, I think, and and I think that's really important, isn't it? Because it, it you kind of, it gives them ownership of something. I so I think what. what because often I sort of feel that children are almost adrift. They're cut adrift because they're not given. Very, very rarely in our society do we get those sort of, sort of rites of passage and initiations, uh, where where children are then given degrees of responsibility, and and, and so you, that seems to have been lost somewhere in the West. At least mm. it might be different in in smaller communities in in other indigenous cultures, but it feels like giving some a child ownership so if they learn how to grow food and then they see that food growing from seeds to a crop which they then harvest and they see it arriving in the kitchen it's kind of like you can take ownership and take pride in the fact that hey I helped to grow that I grew that and harvested that and now we're eating it and it your whole relationship changes yeah 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 it does it really does because for
0: the children as well they feel that they're taking care of something
1: yes yeah
0: you know um, But then it kind of goes up to another level because they're taking care of something, which is what they're going to put into their body, you know? And when the children are outside and see the vibrancy of color that nature provides through food, then it's like an artist's palette and they can do whatever they want with it. So mm. it's having that childlike spirit in yeah. the garden and then in the kitchen as well, where their creativity is just allowed to flow. Great.
1: Yeah. So aspirations for the future. What What sort of, I mean, that's a big question and a broad mm-hmm. question, but in terms of your work and, or even other projects, have you, have you got sort of plans for the future? Can we even plan for the future in these times? <laughs> that's the question. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that was a really good one. Yeah. When, when um, you asked me that question um, before we came on today, that was the best one, really, because I had to sit there and really go deep with that one about plans for the future. Because on one level, am I planning or the plans that I want, are they coming from a pattern of how I would plan two years ago? Mm. Of how I want things to look or to turn out. Will it be possible with these moving parameters all the time to create what I would choose now, but is that running from an old program? Mm. It's the same thing that keeps coming up. Because in the food let's in the food space, things have like probably some other areas as well, it's moving at such a breakneck speed. You know, there's shops that you can buy your food in, in cities at the moment where you don't have staff. You go in there, everything's on camera. You pay with a card and you walk out with a bag full of groceries. So in terms of the future and trying to stay on topic with that question, Phil, I mean, it's a little bit like going back on what we were talking about before. A space where there's growing, cooking, sharing, eating community. Those elements I would like to see all married together, but how that manifests itself as let's say a a future project, I do feel that that is possible. And that would be that space where we can engage with all of those things, with all age ranges, As a business, it can incorporate many things, Mm. whether it's courses, whether it's products, whether it's classes, whether it is a kind of communal cafe slash restaurant space. All of those things Mm. are possible, but the core element of the eating, the growing, the sharing, the community they're kind of like the foundations, So that yeah. is in a future sense, that's what I would really like. And then the outer, how it would manifest would be, okay, so we could have that space as the courses, the retreats, mm-hmm. the products and the, the cafe restaurant space. Th- that's really what I'd like to see. Like many things, isn't there? When you start something, then the mm-hmm. the energy comes to support you. The people come to support you to do that. And lots of us are looking for solutions to creating the future that we want to see right now. So we're being pulled to engage in the things where we feel wholesome and joyful. And in the in the food sense of things, that's how I see to something coming.
1: Yeah, so it's just sort of an act of um, self-empowerment, isn't it? Because we've been up until now sort of reliant on a system where we think we're being provided with things and we've kind of agreed to participate in this kind of consumerism or this, this particular arena, but actually it's about coming up with our own solutions rather than looking to someone else to do it for us or find the solution for us. So we've got various challenges obviously at the moment, but that sort of coming up with the ideas ourselves and then collaborating with people and creating those new systems, if we want to call them that, seems to be the way to go. We're being asked to step up and 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 find the solutions. Yeah. Mm.
0: And so there's many positive things that are coming out of these times that we're living in um, because it is bringing us together to find the solutions. It's, it's bringing us together to collaborate because deep yeah. down we know that that dependency that we've been told we need to yes. have, to survive, to mm. live, is not fulfilling us. On so many different levels and collaborating is the way that we can come through all of this Mm. and feel inspired and motivated and optimistic about what the future holds. Yes, absolutely. Um, Yeah. I can feel something's waking up
1: inside just by you sharing that question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know and that's my wish also that by having these conversations with people these podcasts that we then start to sort of share ideas when by by getting these ideas out in the open and and expressing them and sharing it's just it feels like it starts to bring other things up or it might start to connect other people and bring other people in so it's uh Mm. feels like a good thing it's a very very good thing i mean
0: that dependency on something outside of us it's almost creating or that what le- a sense of lack that unless you have this or it's a selling it's a marketing that you need to have this to to feel complete and all of the time it's it's almost like going against our intrinsic nature because we know we don't need a lot of those things. Mm. What we really want to be tapping into is what makes us whole. And yes. that wholeness is not dependent on something on the outside telling us we're missing something. Exactly. It's like a disconnect, isn't it? Yeah,
1: exactly. And we're kind of constantly projecting outwards to find something that we already are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, I was going to ask you what sort of excites you and brings you joy generally in life, but I,
0: yeah,
1: what brings you joy and excites you apart from food? <laughs> 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 or is it maybe it's just food?
0: <laughs> um, sitting here with you doing the podcast actually, mm. this brings me joy. Yeah, this brings me joy. This connection. Yeah, you inviting me to join you.
1: Mm. Yes, um, thank you
0: because it's never about the initial, would you like to come There's so much more that's going on within us right now. Um, And I feel really joyful and really happy to be sitting at this table with you, having Mm. this conversation. Um, That brings me joy. Being in nature brings me joy. Being with conscious people, having awake conversations, collaborating with other people in whatever form that takes. A sense of community Mm. brings me joy. Having some fun and being lighthearted. Yeah. You know, dancing, music, art, sleeping under the stars. Yes. Going for a swim in the ocean, going for long walks through the fields. Mm. There's so many things that can spark joy that I'm really grateful to To experience, yeah,
1: yeah, I like all of those. I think that's uh, a great list, and uh, and it's what makes us real, isn't it? And 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 fully embodied, yeah, uh, those natural, and and we're being sort of told in the mainstream media to do almost the opposite: isolate, disconnect, yeah, and and that that can't be good.
0: (laughs) It it's not on any level, is it? I mean, Mm. human beings are wired for connection. We we yeah. resonate with one another. There's a frequency match. That's what we are here for. There's, you know, when you look in nature, and I will have a look and see if there's any animals out there or anything, any living being mm. that thrives in its aloneness. Mm. Which you know, that's the what thrives in aloneness because when we come together, we find solutions, we create change, we feel energized. We we support one another. Um, we feel safe, and the current circumstances are, are doing the polar opposite of that. Mm. Um, and there is so much joy to be had. My girlfriend and I went for a walk through the fields on Sunday night, very spontaneous. Sun was shining; it was nice and warm, and we saw elder flowers. Oh. So I was picking loads of elder flowers, and then we came home, and I made a syrup with the flowers, and it was like. What? We felt like we just had a holiday. Yeah. It was just this little pocket of time where nothing else existed other than that moment. And it Mm. was, that was joyful. That was magical.
1: Yeah, I love those sort of spontaneous moments. And you you just feel like you encapsulate everything in that moment. And that's all it needs, really. It doesn't need grand plans. It's just something that unfolds Ah. very naturally. And I also like the idea of that sort of interconnectedness because we do... As human beings we need that connection and when you look at nature everything is connected in in the sense that you know I remember reading somewhere like trees we kind of see them as these sort of individual things that are standing but their root systems are all interconnected and and I don't know if this is true but it feels like it is that if one tree is sick the other trees know through their rooted connection that the the other tree is suffering and they then help to provide for that tree through their root system. So you get this kind of Wow. Yeah. And 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 that that to me seems like that's what we need as human beings. We need connection. We need embraces. We need Yeah. yeah. Whatever it is to keep us uh to keep us human and embodied in that way. Yeah,
0: mm. that's beautiful. I'd I'd seen something similar as well about the mushroom kingdom. Oh yes, yeah. That the mushroom kingdom when they're when the spores are in the earth, that they're they're all communicating with one another and some of the mushrooms are telling which flowers to come into blossom and when yeah. to come into bud and it's what you said, it's that interconnectedness, mm. you know, what thrives in its aloneness. Mm. I'd be mystified to find something
1: because that separation, that's not life. No doesn't feel like that's what we're here to do, to be separate nah. and just no. sitting alone in a, and consuming <laughs> and watching Netflix. <laughs> I don't know. There's yeah. a big no rising <laughs> up inside. It's like,
0: no. <laughs> yeah. Well, Samada, yeah. it's been
1: a real pleasure speaking with you and thanks for sharing your insights, your wisdom, yeah, and your experience. I mean, it sounds like it's been quite a journey and you've um, got much to share. So yeah. Um, thank you yeah thank you it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for inviting me today Phil. thank you i really hope you've enjoyed this episode if you'd like to find out more about samardo and his work you can visit his website at samardo.sibley.com. there'll also be links and other details of things we covered during the podcast in the description on the source connected website or wherever you're listening to this podcast If you're interested in more podcasts covering creative and innovative solutions for a new earth paradigm, please visit the Source Connected website at sourceconnected.org.